stand if you're able for the reading of God's word. The scripture today is from John 2, verses 13 to 22, and is found on page 887 of your Pew Bibles. It will also be displayed on the screens in front of you and behind you. Jesus cleanses the temple. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there, and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured all the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is God's word. One of you'll keep your Bibles open to John chapter 2 as we pray together this morning. God, as we open your word together today, um, we ask that you would give us eyes to see you and ears to hear your voice, that you would open our hearts to receive you. Not the Jesus that we make or desire, but who you are in truth and who you reveal yourself to be in your word. We ask, Lord, that you would give us a desire for who you really are and that you would give us hearts to receive you and believe in your name this morning. God, this is our desire, and we ask that by your Spirit you would bring it about in us, in the name of your Son. Amen. I think we all have things that irritate us or bother us and really get under our skin. Even the very most patient people among us is frustrated by certain things that are important to them. And sometimes they are justified. And other times, uh, they are just being picky. Sometimes the things that are our pet peeves don't seem to bother anybody else, because often our pet peeves are our own, and to others, they are just confusing. Jessica can tell you uh, that one of my pet peeves is noticing that the dishwasher has been loaded incorrectly. (laughs) I have a specific method for loading the dishes in the dishwasher in a very specific layout that has been meticulously researched and tested. So when I notice that the dishes have been loaded in a different way, it just gets to me in a way that is hard for me to explain. Uh, But I can also say that my habit for rearranging the dishes that Jessica has just loaded into the dishwasher is probably one of her pet peeves. 
There are things for each of us in life that bother us, that offend our sensibilities and rub us the wrong way, and we think to ourselves, why would anybody do it the way they're doing it? Why would they do that? Don't they understand that that's not right? While they're thinking, why is Travis so strange? Because often we don't fully understand the things that bother other people. We, we have a hard time getting into their headspace and understanding the little idiosyncrasies in life that rub them the wrong way. And that was certainly the case in Jerusalem when Jesus was clearly bothered by something, we can say, at the very least, he was, he was bothered by something uh, that was happening in the temple, and no one really understood his frustration, at least not at the time. Jesus and his first followers had come to Jerusalem, we are told in verse 13 of our passage, to take part in the Passover festival that was happening there. It was an important part of Jewish worship every year, during which hundreds of thousands of people would make their pilgrimages to the city. And in the days and weeks leading up to the Passover, Jerusalem would swell from a city of just over 200,000 to a city of over 1 million. And that's because Passover was at the heart of Jewish religious practice. It was very important. It commemorated the night that God poured out his wrath on the nation of Egypt in order to free his people, the Israelites, from their slavery there. With the blood of a lamb marking the doors of all the Jewish homes in the land, the people of God were marked and spared the judgment of God, which literally passed over their houses. And afterward, the people were freed, and they fled their captors that very night. It was one of these central moments in Jewish history when God rescued his people and brought justice to those who had enslaved them, and one which was solemnly remembered every year. It was so important that people would travel for weeks or even months from different parts of Europe and North Africa and the Near East to worship and make their sacrifices at the Jewish temple in the city of Jerusalem, and Jesus was among them, coming to observe the Passover in Jerusalem. He had come from his home in Galilee, about 60 miles north of the city. It certainly was not as far as many others had traveled, but it reveals to us that clearly worship at the temple was a priority to him. But this trip to Jerusalem would be different. Because on arriving there, John notes that Jesus found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. These people are merchants who are providing a service. They are there to sell animals which are fit for sacrifice in the temple, which is part of a Passover worship. And money changers are there on hand because all the Jewish men were required to submit a temple tax, which was only payable in the local currency. These are necessary services for people who have traveled from far-flung places, who have different currencies, and who didn't want to make their thousand-mile journey to Jerusalem with an ox in tow. Their presence, the presence of these merchants, had really become just a part of the Passover scene in Jerusalem that no one really questioned. Just like we do every year when we bring pine trees into our houses and decorate them to commemorate a holiday, We grow up with that tradition, we see it every year, so we never really stop to question it or ask if it's strange, even though it totally is. The Passover market has just become a part of the observance of the the, the holiday, and everyone has just accepted that. Yet, when Jesus encounters them this year, this time, this trip to Jerusalem, his reaction 
surprises us as much as it did everyone else. John tells us that he made a whip of cords and drove them out of the temple. Now that is dedication to your cause. (laughs) Building a whip on the scene to express your frustration. It must have been quite a scene. The whole thing takes place in the outermost court of the temple complex called the Court of the Gentiles. And if you think of the whole temple as a series of concentric circles, with the innermost circle being the most holy place, this is the outermost and largest of the concentric circles, the only part of the temple that was open to non-Jewish worshipers. And it was a massive area, which would have been filled to the brim for the holiday with crowds, with merchants, with their stalls and large animals and their stacks of coins. And with a homemade whip in his hand, Jesus scatters these crowds and causes a stampede of livestock. (laughs) It must have been a wild, wild moment in Jesus' ministry, something absolutely a sight to behold for people who were there. It's so significant that it is recorded by all four of the gospel writers, but here in John, it's given a unique role and emphasis. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this scene is described as one of the final events of Jesus' ministry. It's right at the end. It's part of the, the, the final straw for Jesus' opponents that would motivate them to have him arrested and killed. We understand that. I mean, it's, he's cracking a whip at people in the temple. It's going to make people upset with him. But here in John, it's right up front. At the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, it is his introduction to the world. It's something, this, this is something that all gospel writers do, just to put your mind at ease. All gospel writers move specific parts of the story around a little bit to emphasize certain points or to highlight specific aspects of Jesus' life and character. And that may seem strange to us that they would do that, that they would take liberties like that. Maybe it's even troubling to us that they would take liberties with the chronology of events and move things around in their report of Jesus' life. But John is not writing a police report or a history textbook. He's writing a book that's designed to help people understand Jesus Christ. And John has decided to place this scene right at the front, in the opening of his account of Jesus' life, to emphasize a specific point, one that Jesus himself will make in his actions. It is a shocking moment, and one that surely stunned those who were there to see it. But as he cracks his whip, Jesus reveals aspects of his character. He reveals to us who he is, what he cares most about, and what he has come to do. And understanding that, we see how this scene serves as the perfect way to introduce Jesus' ministry to those who would read this book. At the very end of a very different book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader by C.S. Lewis, there's a very interesting scene. It's the third book in the Chronicles of Narnia series in which Jesus is represented as the magnificent and at times ferocious lion named Aslan. Aslan is massive, and his presence inspires confidence in his victory over evil and over all who oppress him. But here, at the end of this book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, the main characters find themselves face to face with something entirely different. They meet a lamb who is so bright white that they can hardly look at it. And it has a voice that Lewis describes as sweet. 
His presence is comforting in a way that Aslan's was, but for very different reasons. He's gentle and he is inviting. And the kids ask this lamb how they can find Aslan again. And before their eyes, Lewis writes, his snowy white flushed into tawny gold and his size changed and he was Aslan himself, towering above them and scattering light from his mane. It's a clever moment in the story and one that makes a very important point. Aslan is both the lion and the lamb. He is the ferocious conqueror and the gentle comforter. The trouble was that the kids did not recognize him at first because he didn't look like what they were expecting him to look like. And that's an issue I think many of us face when we come to this passage in John chapter 2. Because Jesus is revealing aspects of his nature to us that we may be prone to overlook because we are not looking for them. We are shocked, I think, many of us, to see Jesus cracking a whip and flipping tables in the temple court because those actions clash with what we typically think of when we think about Jesus. I mean, Jesus isn't supposed to be angry, right? Most of the artwork depicting Jesus that's been produced over the last 2,000 years portrays him as just the opposite, as a gentle and harmless baby in a manger, as a teacher who welcomes children into his presence, as a servant who washes his disciples' feet, and the helpless man who is hung on a cross. And he is all of those things, but he is more. He is a lamb whose voice is sweet and comforting, but he is also a lion who is ferocious and powerful. I think one of the ways that this passage helps us is by reminding us that we must receive Christ as he has revealed himself, not as we would make him. We must receive Christ as he has, received, as he has revealed himself, not simply in the way that we are looking for him. At various points in his life and ministry, Jesus is anything but lamb-like. I'm intrigued by the fact that at several points during his ministry, his disciples are literally terrified of him. In Mark chapter 4, when Jesus and all of his disciples are in a boat and they're crossing the Sea of Galilee, a terrible storm arrives and it threatens to, think, to sink their little ship. And the disciples, some of whom are seasoned fishermen, well acquainted with the sort of storms that would have whipped up on the Sea of Galilee, think, these seasoned fishermen think that they are about to die. That's how serious this storm is. And yet, when they look, they find that Jesus is sound asleep. And so they wake him up, asking if he cares in the slightest that they are all about to drown. And Jesus surprises them all by standing up and rebuking the wind and the waves. And at the sound of his voice, the storm itself is silenced. And afterward, it says in Mark 4, 41, that they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. The terrible storm with its violent wind and waves is silent before Jesus, whose power overwhelms what they were afraid of before. And afterward, it's not the storm that it causes them fear, it is Jesus himself. They have glimpsed Jesus' fearsome strength. And they realize that everything they have feared up till right now wilts before him. 
I think we often tend to reflect more on Jesus' gentleness and his kindness and in his comforting nature. Yet, he is both. All at once, he is the lion and the lamb. We get to see both of those aspects of his nature here in this passage. When he is driving the merchants and their animals and the money changers out of the temple, he says, take these things away. Do not make my father's house into a house of trade. He calls the temple his father's house. God promises to meet with his people in the temple and in this house, the place where God's presence would descend and dwell among his people to rest among them and receive their worship. It was a holy place, and Jesus, in fearsome strength, will not tolerate its violation. In Matthew and Mark and Luke, Jesus is recorded as saying that the merchants make the temple into a house of robbers. The reason he says that is because there's strong evidence that these merchants and money changers were taking advantage of people. They had traveled so far to worship at the temple, and now that they were here, they had no choice but to do business with those who were selling animals for sacrifice and those who were changing foreign coins into the local currency. And so they raised the prices because these people had no other choice. It's kind of like when we go to a professional sporting event, once you're inside, you have no choice but to pay $11 for a bottle of water. These worshipers, once they were in the city, didn't have any other options for changing their money or buying animals for sacrifice. So the merchants started gouging these worshipers, knowing that they had no choice to pay whatever their prices were. And we can understand Jesus' anger over that. But here in John, that's not the issue. He isn't recorded here saying anything about them being robbers. There's no indication that he is uh, cracking a whip because they have gouged these worshipers. He, he's angry here that trade is happening in the first place. Because what ought to be a place of worship is now a place of profit. It is a business opportunity. And even if they said, we're just here to help people worship, we're here to provide this service, Jesus knows better. In the very last verse of this chapter, verse 25, Jesus tells us that he doesn't need anyone to explain themselves to him because he himself knew what was in man. He knows their hearts, and he knows that they desire money more than they desire to see God's people come to him in true worship. It is religion used as a cover for greed. It's an issue that Jesus dealt with elsewhere. In Luke chapter 16, after teaching his followers that no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus is confronted, after he says these things, by the Jewish leaders who, Luke tells us, were lovers of money, who heard all these things and ridiculed him. This clash at the temple in John 2 is not the only time Jesus will confront this issue, though it is certainly the most dramatic. And we should take note of this moment, because there are plenty of pastors and church leaders out there who fly around in Gulfstream jets, who live in mansions, and whose lavish lifestyles are supported by people whose genuine desire is to know God and to worship Him. 
There is nothing in the Gospels that stokes Jesus' wrath and anger more than a love of money that is cloaked in a love of worshiping God. In every single account of Jesus' life, readers are confronted with this warning and reminded that Jesus is all at once the lion and the lamb, whose fearsome anger is a thing to behold and whose gentle words are a comfort for those who desire to worship in spirit and truth. We behold Jesus here with a whip in his hand, with all, the div- with all of his divine power at his fingertips, and we get a glimpse of something else that Jesus reveals about himself. In cleansing the temple, Jesus also reveals to us his heart, his passion for true and joyous worship of God. The disciples, remembering this scene, understand that Jesus' love was one for the temple and what it represented. They remember the words of Psalm 69, written by King David centuries prior, and they understand that the words of Psalm 69 were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Psalm 69 is a prayer and an outcry for rescue. According to its opening verse, David is up to his neck in danger. He is surrounded by those who want to take his life, and he has turned toward God for deliverance. And in verse 9, he says, Zeal for your house has consumed me. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. It is his passion for God that has brought him such hardship. It is his love for God that has resulted in the opposition of those who are opposed to God. And the disciples remember this. They consider Jesus' life and they see parallels. It is Jesus' love for his Father and for right worship that begins to galvanize his opposition among Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. He has disturbed their traditions and their business opportunities, and he's called out behavior that they seem to already know is wrong. They know that they have looked to profit off of people's desire for worship. And so, when they confront Jesus, they don't challenge the point he's making. They don't challenge his accusation that they have made this place of worship into a house of trade. They don't challenge that notion. When he is finally confronted in verse 18, it is not with a defense of these traditions with the market, the Passover market. It is with a question about his authority for calling them out. (laughs) That's what they're worried about. They ask, what sign do you show us for doing these things? They want to have a debate not about whether or not what they have done is right or wrong, but whether or not he has the authority to call them out for it. And in asking for a sign, they reveal that they aren't entirely sure what to make of him. He's acting like a prophet, one who has come to rebuke God's people for their failure to honor God, just as other prophets had done at countless points throughout Israel's history. And they wonder if he can prove it, if he can prove that he has been sent by God with God-given authority. They likely have in mind passages like Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, in which God promised that the Lord whom you seek will, will suddenly come to his temple. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. 
He will purify the priests and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. God promises to send someone to purify the temple. And Jesus has come to the temple to refine like an intense fire, like one would refine gold and silver. Because what ought to be a place reserved for worship and holy reverence of God, where God the Father is glorified, Jesus sees that it has been abused and used as a means for personal gain. And Jesus' hatred for this abuse, when he displays it with a whip in his hand, shows us his heart for right worship and for those who love God. The same thing happens when someone hurts someone that we love. The very most nice, most friendly, most agreeable person that you know can turn into a grizzly bear if you do something to hurt the people that they love. And it's not because they're naturally prone to anger. It's because their love is so strong that it provokes this sort of mama bear response. Jesus is not angry by nature, nor is he temperamental, but he loves his Father, and he loves his people. And the abuse of what he loves will not go unchecked. And in this very interesting moment of his life, we get a vivid picture of what he loves and how strongly he loves it. But when asked to explain himself, to prove his authority by performing a sign, Jesus responds with an interesting challenge to these Jewish leaders. He doesn't say, no, I'm not doing that for you. I'm going to give you a sign, playing by your rules. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And it almost sounds like a challenge. The word for destroy is a direct imperative to them. You do this. You do this. You tear this place down, and I will raise it up. You tear down this temple brick by brick, and I will rebuild it in three days. That will be your sign. And even though they have no idea what Jesus means, Jesus is revealing something else about himself in this passage. He is revealing his mission. The temple authorities are incredulous when they hear him say this. You can almost hear them snickering to themselves when they say, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. You can imagine them looking around this massive temple complex surrounding them on all sides. It truly was an impressive structure that practically made their point for them. They really didn't have to say anything. Archaeologists know that some of the foundation stones that were used in the building of the temple were incredibly massive, weighing over 10 tons. Its highest point was over 150 feet high, which was a marvel of ancient engineering. It took eight years of just stockpiling materials to prepare for the construction of the temple. And even with a team of over 10,000, it had still taken over 46 years to build it. Yet Jesus says that he could do it in three days. It's a comment that was surely met with confusion and perhaps the assumption that this person they're dealing with is literally crazy. They ask for a miracle, and what Jesus, this is what Jesus offers them, a challenge that if they tear down the temple, he will miraculously rebuild it. And surely they were irritated by that comment. In fact, Matthew's gospel records that this very comment would be used against Jesus to convince those in power that he deserved execution. 
They wanted to know if he had the authority to do what he's doing, cracking his whip in the temple, to interrupt trade in the temple. They want to see if he could prove to them with a sign of divine power that he has that authority, and he replies with a comment that they interpreted as a threat. But Jesus is promising them that he will show them a sign. When they destroy God's temple, he will rebuild it. It wasn't the answer they were expecting. And when he says it, no one understood him. They laugh because obviously they aren't going to tear down the temple, see him struggle to rebuild it, watch this guy out there with his bricks and his trowel and mortar and try and rebuild this thing. They're they're thinking, this guy's crazy. But John explains to his readers, to us, that Jesus was actually talking about the temple of his body. Verse 21. It's a revelation that John has already alluded to in this book in chapter 1, when he declared that the eternal word who was God and was with God became flesh. He was born and he dwelt among us. And that word for dwell is important, as we've already noticed in our study of the book of John. It's the same word used in the Old Testament to refer to the first temple structure, the tabernacle. In the tabernacle, in the tabernacle God would dwell among his people It was the most important function of the temple structure to serve as the meeting place between God and humanity. And as this book has already declared, in Jesus' coming, God has dwelt among us. He has tabernacled among us. He has been the temple who came to live among us. So John's comment in chapter 2 that Jesus is speaking about the temple of his body is a reference to something that John comprehends as he looks backward through his life at this moment, which he understands in light of everything that Christ will do during his life and ministry. Because in his life and death and resurrection, the purpose of the temple was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In him, no longer do people meet with God in a temple building. No longer do they require the mediation of a temple priest to stand between them and God. Instead, Jesus himself is the temple and the great high priest. He is the one who has bridged the gap and has come to dwell among his people. Where they used to see the temple building as the way to God, Jesus alone is revealed to be the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Him. He has come to replace the old with the new, with something better. It's a theme we saw last week when Jesus turned water into wine. The water which was set apart, set aside for purification and the observance of the law is transformed and made new as Jesus gives His, his people a reason to celebrate He will give purification that the water never could. And the old temple is being replaced with something new, something that will do what the old temple never could. In John chapter 4, when Jesus is traveling through a, a region called Samaria, he meets a woman at a well. It's a famous scene in which Jesus demonstrates his divinity and his love and his concern for this woman who has had a difficult and scandalous life. She perceives that there is something interesting about Jesus, and so she tests him by asking an important question. The Samaritans and the Jewish people, they did not get along, and one one disagreement that they had with one another was where God's people should worship, the location that they should consider the center of God's worship. 
So she says in chapter 4, verse 20, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain here in Samaria. But you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. She wants to know how Jesus will answer this question, how he will speak to this tension. And she assumes that because he is Jewish, he will tell her that she must go to worship in Jerusalem if she wants to follow the rules and do it the right way. But Jesus does not say that. He tells her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. In Christ, the question of worship is no longer a question of geography. Because in Christ, God has come to us. He finds us in our sin, alone at the well, and invites us to worship him in spirit and truth. Because he is the temple, the true and better temple that Israel's temple anticipated. It is the keeping of a promise that the old temple represented. The hope of temple worship was for atonement and communion with God, needs which Christ alone can truly meet. And even if the listeners in the temple court back in John chapter 2 understand this, even though they did not understand this, John tells us that when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus fulfilled the hope of Israel's temple in his death and resurrection, and having seen it, his disciples put these pieces together and realize what he was talking about back in chapter 2. Where the old temple called for annual sacrifices to cover the guilt of the people before a holy God, Jesus himself is the sacrifice that once for all covers the guilt of God's people. Where the old temple required pilgrimage and traveling over vast distances, great and far, to find the house of God and God's presence there, Jesus is God who comes to us. And where the old temple was bound by cultural walls and disagreements over the right location and the right practice, Jesus alone is the way and the life. It was what John himself saw when he beheld the vision of the new heavens and the new earth at the very, very end of the Bible. In the book of Revelation, when God has restored his creation and all of the hopes of salvation have been carried out, John sees God's holy city. And he hears a voice proclaiming, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with mankind. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And in examining the city, in awe of its sheer brilliance, John notes, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. Jesus has come to inaugurate the end and to begin setting the foundation stones of this new temple, one that simply is life in God's presence. It is his mission. It is the objective, the end game of all of salvation. The Jewish leaders confronting Jesus wanted a miracle, a sign to prove his authority. And Jesus promises that they will receive one. They will destroy the temple. Not one made of stone, 
but the tabernacle of God's word made flesh and come to dwell among us, Jesus himself. They will see him crucified and buried, the true and better temple torn down. And Jesus himself will raise it up. Three days later, he will restore what had been torn down. Jesus' resurrection was the ultimate sign, the most compelling, most doubt-silencing, categorical proof of his authority. Because the disciples, who scattered and hid when Jesus was arrested and executed, behold him risen. And according to John in this passage, remembered that he had said this, and they believed. Jesus gives the sign that he promises. He has the authority to rule in the temple because he is the temple, because he is God among us, because he performs signs and wonders, and because he is the victor over death itself. There are a lot of reasons John might have chosen to place this curious scene at the opening of his gospel. It certainly makes a strong first impression. I think, though, that the most compelling reason that John has moved this story to the very beginning is because it sets the stage for understanding exactly what Jesus came to accomplish. He has come to fulfill all of the hope of of the Jerusalem temple in a way that this building never could. And in knowing that, we read the book of John with a clearer understanding of Jesus' mission as it unfolds during his life and ministry. But what are we to make of this? What are we to take away from this scene? There is no direct instruction for us in these lines, no encouragement to persevere, no specific doctrinal comments that shape our lives. Yet, I think that twice in this scene, we are given examples of how we take away lessons for application from this text. Twice, John tells us that the disciples look back on this moment and remember what they heard. They may have only seen uh, what they may have only seen as a pet peeve of Jesus's then, thinking to themselves like, wow, this guy really does not like people selling oxen. I guess that's just really one of his pet peeves. They only understood that much of it. But later when they looked back, when they looked backward through their lives and beheld their crucified and risen Savior who has a passion for the temple and who promised to build it up in three days, looking back at all of these things and remembering Jesus' words, they grow in understanding and knowledge of Jesus, and they follow him more closely. Their lives have been shaped by having met Jesus, and remembering him, their lives continue to be shaped by him. Meeting Jesus is something that changes all of us, and knowing him, an ongoing relationship with him, reflecting on his words in Scripture, Reflecting on the gospel and growing in our understanding of his mission is something that continues that transformation. The apostles spent the rest of their lives remembering this moment. And as they did, they dwelt on the words of Jesus and reflected on his zeal for God's house and what it represented. They came to understand his nature and his heart for true worship and and his mission and they were made new. As they remembered, their, their nature and their hearts and their own mission began to align with Jesus's. And the same transformation happens in us as we remember him.
we become both gentle and formidable in our defense of the gospel. Our love, is, is, it becomes a love for true worship of our holy God, and our mission as Christ's body is Christ's mission to bring the nations into God's presence in worship. John, along with the other disciples, spent the rest of his life with a zeal for the temple who is Jesus Christ. They wrote books just like this one, planted churches, preached the gospel among Jews and Gentiles alike, and gave their lives to see people come to know Jesus. Having beheld Jesus' own nature as both the lion and the lamb, his heart for true worship, and his mission to fulfill the hope of the temple, their own mission was defined and driven forward. In Christ, they knew, and we know, that our God is near. He is not distant and withdrawn, that he has come to us in our need. They knew, and we know, that there is now no further sacrifice necessary to cover our guilt because in his love for us, Christ has become the sacrifice. They knew, and we know, that we can now draw near to God without fear because in Christ we have the way and the truth and the life of God given to us. And so we remember, as the disciples did, Jesus' nature was both gentle and formidable, that his heart was for his people and worship, and that his mission was to bring, bring his people into true worship to his Father. And in doing so, as we remember, as we reflect on it and rejoice in it, we are made like him by his grace and for his glory. Let's pray together. God, our desire this morning is to know you, to know you as you reveal yourself. We ask that you would challenge the misconceptions that we might bring to the table, the assumptions that we bring with us to our relationship with you, and that you would, that you would reveal yourself to us in truth, that we might receive you as you reveal yourself to us. God, we reflect on your passion for the temple, your passion for true worship, and your mission to bring it about. And we ask that you would equip us to follow you. As we grow in a passion for true worship and a mission to bring it about, we ask that you would equip us to succeed. In the name of your Son, we ask these things. Amen.